Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to, if not a very special, at least a very weird episode of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. This episode is brought to you by the fact that due to some uh, glitch um, that Ethan is pretty sure isn't his fault, but may very well be his fault, uh, Ethan lost his side of the audio um, for the second uh, part of our discussion of The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. Uh, we have Michael's audio, we don't have Ethan's. So, out of a number of um, quite valid, sort of dignified options, including, you know, just saying, saying, you know, uh, sorry, technical difficulties, um, there won't be an episode, or, you know, things, things with sort of a lot of, a lot of, uh, class and, and dignity. Now, instead, um, out of, instead of, you know, those options, what I've chosen to do is re-record, uh, my own side doing a live listen to Michael's side of the audio. So this is Ethan, several weeks later, um, Having honestly forgotten most of what I said in the episode and um, most of, like, you know, what Michael said, honestly, too. Like, I forget that the next day, and we've been releasing these these uh, episodes over the course of the last six or eight weeks, so um, I'm quite distant from uh, where I was you know, when this uh, episode was first recorded. But I have my copy of The End of the Affair. I have... Um, a scotch, not the same scotch that we were drinking at the time. Today I'm drinking a Glenmora Speyside, uh, the Elgin Classic. Um, it's a perfectly nice scotch. It's, it's not quite as, as, um, world class as the, uh, Highland Park 12 year old we were drinking, but, but, um, no regrets. It's, a uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, I will be, sort of trying to reconstruct my side of the audio while listening and reacting to Michael's side of the audio. So it's going to be very weird. There's going to be a lot of, like, if I didn't, you know, put this put this verbal warning sort of on the beginning, it would probably just, uh, it would not seem like a normal episode. You'd know something was up, but you wouldn't know what. So I thought I'd just, in the interest of honesty, um, warn you here, and we'll see. Hopefully it will be... Between being entertaining, funny, uh, or edifying, hopefully it will be at least one of those. Um, yeah, so that said, Michael, take it away. Welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal. This is my guest, Ethan Bartlett, and we're going to talk about books, but not about Scotch. Right, Ethan? That's right, Michael. This this is already weird. What Scotch we are drinking is this Highland Park 12-year-old Viking Honor Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. I assume I said something here, but I have no idea what it was. Um, perhaps a joke. Let's see what Michael does. Yep. You, uh, you are, you contain multitudes. I do contain multitudes. Um, <laughs> I see, there, there's, um, oh, is it Bob Dylan? Yeah, I think it's a, a Bob Dylan song that, uh, he, he says that line, he sings that line a lot. So that's, that's how I hear it now is in his voice. I contain multitudes. I have to assume that here I either made fun of Michael for his singing voice, which seems pretty mean, or I said something about being, like, irritated because I don't really like Walt Whitman, but I do love Bob Dylan. <laughs> which, yeah, was probably pretty funny. And that's only a millennial problem. It is. Yep. So, 
now that we've uh, offered our thoughts on politics. Uh, Ethan, have your wife read the rules. So this is the break for Karen to read the rules, but I'm going to skip it because this episode is already Thank too you. weird. Goodbye forever. Oh, okay. You mean you're still... Okay. Yeah, I'm still here. What? This is the future. Huh? It's the future. Wait, are you hearing me? Because that's weird. <laughs> plead the fifth. Plead the fifth. I do plead the fifth, because, like, I know how time travelers... <laughs> As your lawyer. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I know how time travelers get treated in every movie, so... Like, I'm going to plead the fifth here. Guys, I'm sorry, this is very weird. Flancha. You have a forever contract. Ooh. Man, I wish I had my side of the audio for that. Um, So yes, gentle listener, we are still discussing The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. You had a chance to read it last episode. This is part two, so we're not going to do that again. I'm saying it right here, right now. I don't know if that's ever what we've done before, but we're not doing it again. If if you want to pause, your pause is to go back and listen to the first episode. That you did. Yeah, so, too late. No pause. We're just going to talk about it. Um, now, Ethan, you said that you wanted to talk about something this episode? Oh my goodness. I have no idea what that is. Let's see. Right. Maybe Michael will clue me in as we right. sort of listen further here. <laughs> and we talked about the top three. <laughs> oh, yes. As I remember, I wanted to get Michael's opinion on the idea that the end of this book is somehow not playing fair. Um and I think I talked about the puts hair in your chest. Uh, the beginning, or rather, not even the beginning, the introduction to both Michael's and my edition of uh, this book, the introduction by Michael Gora, in which he praises a lot of the aspects of the novel, but one thing that he sort of sure uh, criticizes um, is the ending, specifically the ending in which we get the the revelations that a uh um that Sarah was uh that Sarah was familiar baptized as a as a young child so that sort of that um claim of of catholicism or of of a sort of the claim of of god on her soul you know in the world of the novel, it's it's sort of made to work exactly as the uh, Catholic doctrine would have it. That idea that okay. that a child baptized into the faith is irretrievably marked, um, and it's not a Calvinist like one saved always saved thing, but but that still that child is irretrievably marked, sort of by God or by the Church. Um, and that that has an effect, no matter sort of how the rest of their life goes. Then there are the, the there's the matter of the so-called mm-hmm. miracles. Um, the private detective's son uh, sees her her scribbling in a, a book that Sarah had when she was a child. Um, that there's seems to be no way. Sort of the the message that's given to him seems seems eerily prescient. Then uh, Sarah, you know, theoretically has healed the. Um, uh, healed the the facial facial scar of her um, sort of atheist mentor, uh, and then there's one other right. one that I cannot remember uh, right now, um, but. Uh, 
Anyway, the the point was that the the point that Gora made, I believe, is that sort of, and that um, Green himself sort of seems to uh, agree with, is that the this ending is sort of not playing fair by like the rules of novels, right? Like, like right that that it's it's so unambiguous that it it becomes almost. Um, cheap or it becomes almost like like parable-esque or whatever uh and that that right. shouldn't um be the case in in a form like a novel that's supposed to sort of embody ambiguities and and reflect the the lived experience of real life basically that that um green thought that the the ending was not as ambiguous as it should have been that it it sort of forced yeah. um uh uh, yeah, force Bendix into faith rather than letting letting that sort of build and and happen naturally. Um, and I don't remember at what point in this recording Michael reacts to what I'm about to say. I think I say it at some point, which is that I personally am not sure I agree with Gora or with Green, and I think that um. All of these things seem like they do have potential naturalistic explanations mm-hmm. that don't trap the reader or the character into a particular point of view. I think that they they allow for one point of view or another. Um, even something like the there's a whole the, even yep, something like yep, the uh, the. I don't know the faith yep. healing, or the rather the healing of the of the uh, atheist mentor. Um, that that's like, you know, there there is such a thing as faith healing, and there are there are certainly records of sham faith healers who seem to have had real effects. Now, whether that's you know essentially a placebo effect or the mind unlocking some very powerful mechanism to heal itself um, through the medium of belief right uh, or what it is you know is is certainly debated but uh there's you know the even something like that could have a naturalistic explanation and i think there's room to interpret these characters mm-hmm. uh reactions as faith based without faith being forced upon them and i think the the nub of my question uh, to Michael was what he thinks about that. And maybe I didn't front load it. Maybe I let him answer it first. I it's, don't remember. The, I, I don't know if Catholics ever call it or use this term, but the Lutherans do in the Lutheran confessions about the Catholic doctrine of these things, that it's um, ex opera operato in Latin, that um, by by virtue of the work being worked, um, and the Lutheran argument is they're saying it's done without faith. Um, but like, that's, that's like kind of the point that, um, the baptism sticks, even though there's no faith necessarily there, the, the baptism sticks. So that was Michael, uh, responding to the part where I talked about, um, Sarah's baptism, um, and this idea that, that, uh, again, Catholicism has that, you know, like, sort of like you said, the, the baptism sticks uh, sort of regard by virtue of it being a baptism. Um, so what I meant to say at the beginning also was that I this episode will probably be somewhat disjointed as I cut out parts that I can't remember what the, the relevance was to the conversation and there's a long part where I say a bunch more stuff apparently coming up that I don't know what it is. So I'm going to just cut, sort of time warp us forward mm-hmm. and cut through that and see what Michael has to say on the other side. Right. Yeah. Further in that paragraph, it says, Green found that after describing Sarah's death, he had no great appetite to continue, and rather than allowing Bendrix to grow into a reluctant doubt of his own atheism, he began to hurry on to the end. So, yeah, it's that's that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, so again, this is Michael supporting my, 
my assertion that uh, uh, even Green sort of seemed to agree with Michael Gora, among other people, um, on this idea of uh, that he had sort of not played fair somehow right. uh, with the, the reader. Also, all of these, like, rights and yes that Michael's doing, like, it might seem, <laughs> it might seem like I'm placing some of them um, cutely. I am not that talented at audio or that dedicated to doing the amount of work it would take. So these are just happening organically. Um, and I'm not saying it's not eerie. I, I mean, that's it. That's the statement. Certainly. Um, I think in the introduction, Michael Gore describes how when that comes up, he threw the book against the wall, um, being so upset about it. Uh, and uh, I, I, I want to say that when I encountered that point where we started seeing these miracles happening, specifically the one about the atheist mentor, and I'm really mad that I can't remember his name, um, but when his cheek is healed and that's all described and it's like, no, it was, it was a miracle. And like, he, he just like basically flat out says that it was, it was a miraculous touch that she touched it and it, it was healed. Um, I was like, what? Wait a minute. What? It seemed so out of place. But then, so, like, because I had that reaction, it forced me to pause and think about it. And by stopping and thinking about it, I think I have come down on a disagreement with Gora and Green uh, that I, I don't think it's out of place because you're dealing with a crisis of faith in the narrator, right? If, if this were a third-person narrator, maybe it would be a problem. But this being a first-person narrator, he's allowed to fluctuate. He's allowed to be different and to see things differently, especially after a trauma and the the, the death of the the lover and all that. Um, and it's his development is parallel to Sarah's too, um, in like a furtherance of it. Like she's going and trying to find atheism. She wants to embrace that atheism, and so she's going to that atheist teacher. But that winds up just reinforcing more of the faith on her it's subtler for her in a lot of these things but then you have that question is it actually subtler for her um that um uh gora says you know the reader might question why she doesn't just excuse the supposed uh resurrection as a justifiable hysteria uh, moment of hysteria or something like that Right, right. Y yes, yes. Um, all, all, all that um, related things. But the, the thing is, she doesn't. And so while it might be irrational to a reader standing outside it, it's not irrational to the character. And so that's that's something that, uh, you know, we're looking at this from an outside perspective as well, that the, the, um, Bendrix would see being the reader of her journal. Uh, he would see that prayer of hers and the miracle and all of that as irrational things um, or having more rational explanations to them. Uh, but she doesn't. She's inside it. And we can't see everything that, that sh that's going on with her. It's similar for us with Bendrix. We are reading his account. And while it, we might say that's, that's too far, that you can't, you can't just claim that, he wouldn't. He he might object to it off the bat, as Sarah also objected and wanted a way out, but couldn't take a way out. Um, so I, I I think it's excusable primarily because of the first person narrator station of it, and also the parallel development with Sarah um, that we see. Uh, do you have more on that? I really don't. Maybe I did at the time, and sort of looking at the. Uh the uh, amount of silence from Michael's track. Apparently I had a decent amount more, but for the life of me, I cannot remember what it is. So let's see what the next thing Michael has to say is. Right. Especially when, you know, that, that aspect of his care that, you know, the, the physical deformity um, of his cheek is more or less explicitly defined, I think, as the reason for his atheism. You know, like, as far as there is a reason, <laughs> like, that's why he's angry with God, right? So I think, again, we're 
sort of following up Michael's previous point, uh, that these right sort of turns make sense within the world of the characters, uh, even if they don't make sense to us as readers. Right, right. Like he he says. He he says something to Sarah, like, when she's, you know, quote-unquote breaking up with him, uh, to the effect of, like, would a loving God give a child this to live with, right? So that's where that comes in. And so, like, for it to be healed would would have a profound effect there, especially in connection with that death of Sarah and that trauma and everything. Um, I, I do want to, in connection with the miracles and things that we've been discussing here, I, I do want to ask one um, semi-book club-esque question uh, about this. So, with the, the first miracle, did Bendrix die and get resurrected? They're, they're, so, here, I'll, I'll frame it the way a, a, a book club reader's guide would, would frame it. Do you think Bendrix died, and why do you think that, you know, with all the prologue that, you know, remember when you read this book that we're talking about? <laughs> Have you ever died and been resurrected? Why do you think that? Uh, have you made any <laughs> deals with God? I think this is roughly the joke that I made in this place uh, before. Um I and I don't remember what my opinion was at the time, honestly. So I'll just try to like uh, spout something off here, which is that I I think it's to the effect that it doesn't. It okay. sort of doesn't matter, uh, which is of course like my usual answer uh, as. Sure. Michael and any longtime listeners know to any book club question, I often find a way uh, to feel that the question is irrelevant and, and doesn't matter. Um, you know, I think uh, if if there were such a thing as like a doubting Lazarus rather than a doubting Thomas in, you know, the New Testament, like Bendrix would be the figure of that. <laughs> like, even if he had experienced a resurrection, um, for one thing, like, would he know? And for another thing, like, he could still, especially at this phase, sure. he could still probably have experienced it and not believe it. Um, and so, you know, as much as I hate to reduce these things to just mere matters of perspective from from where he's sitting, especially in that moment, he did not experience a resurrection. He just nearly died but didn't. Um, whereas from Sarah's perspective, uh, from, mm -hmm. you know, from her experience, it, it also doesn't matter if he, if Bedrix only nearly died or not, because mm -hmm. to her, right. he experienced a resurrection and the, the sort of whole point is that, um, because God gave her what she asked for, she feels that she now owes God the promise that she made him, for better or worse, for right or wrong. Great. Yeah, and and as as it's framed as a reading guide question, yeah, that that's entirely fair. And more, I, I mostly settle in the reading room guide style of question because I couldn't think, or I hadn't put enough effort into thinking up a better way to phrase what I wanted to get at, which is some of the. Some of that ambiguity uh, is is there in this, but I, I think there it, it could yield an interesting set of analyses to look at it both ways. And one way, so looking at you know talking about the two experiences of this, looking looking at Bendrix's description of the experience, I, I just want to read his his experience. It's on page fifty six. Um, the second full paragraph after a very short paragraph, um, he's running down the stairs, uh, and then uh, he says, I never heard the explosion, and I woke after five seconds or five minutes in a changed world. I thought I was still on my feet, and I was puzzled by the darkness. Somebody seemed to be pressing a cold fist on, into my cheek, and my mouth was salty with blood. 
My mind for a few moments was clear of everything except a sense of tiredness as though I had been on a long journey. I had no memory at all of Sarah, and I was completely free from anxiety, jealousy, insecurity, hate. My mind was a blank sheet on which somebody had just been on the point of writing a message of happiness. I felt sure that when my memory came back, the writing would continue and that I should be happy. So that expression there of, you know, his mental state and his feeling there, you could, again, the ambiguity is there. You could write it off as he's dazed by the explosion in shock from all of this, and that explains all of it. But also there's like this pseudo-religious tone to all of that, this this ethereal happiness, this freedom from anxiety and jealousy and security, hate, all, everything that consumes him for the the rest of the novel before and after is gone at this point. And so I what 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 I think it gets to is by the way Bendrix is describing this, I think at a certain point in some way he does believe that he died. And whether he did or not, I think at a point in the novel, he does believe that he did. That's a really interesting take that I had completely forgotten uh, that Michael had given. Um, so I don't know what I thought of it then, and I don't know what I think of it now. I mean, I think it's a perfectly valid interpretation yeah. right? or claim to make, um, but... Uh, yeah, it's um, it seems right. It seems accurate, and certainly. And I don't think I went into this in our original recording, so we're really, uh, really off the edge of the map here. But I, I mean, I think it functions as a death and resurrection in the sense that, yeah. like, this is Bendrix going into a tomb or going into a a shedding of all mortal concerns. And then being brought back out of the tomb again. And I don't know that I ever brought up Lazarus in the original recording either, but it's it's very Lazarus-like. If you if you picture the story of Lazarus from Lazarus's perspective, where, you know, he probably died without the expectation of ever, you know, coming sure. back before uh you know, in the in the biblical account, Jesus calls him back out of the tomb. Um so yeah, I I guess uh, yeah. it, it's hard to say, you know, Bendrix is so contradictory with even what he puts on the page, let alone what you can assume he leaves off of it. But um, I don't know, this doesn't seem, this seems like a perfectly valid and also very interesting reading to me. You, you mentioned Nirvana, and I want to touch on that here really quick. Um and we can get back. I, I, I hope this isn't too long a digression. On page uh, 87, um, it's in Sarah's diary. Um, now, I had forgotten that I mentioned Nirvana, but that also does make perfect sense. Um, in Eastern religions, which I believe Green, pro I, I believe he would have been familiar with, certainly a lot of his contemporaries were, were interested in them and familiar with them, um, you know, the the description of Henry's experience is very much like Nirvana, like a shedding, a complete shedding of the self into almost a blissful she state. She says, I, I thought I could believe in some kind of a god that bore no relation to ourselves, something vague, amorphous, cosmic, to which I had promised something, and which had given me something in return, stretching out of the vague into co the concrete human life. Like a powerful vapor moving among the chairs and walls. One day I too would become part of that va vapor. I would escape myself forever. Uh, and she goes on and talks about some of the concrete things and, like, realizes how she's wrong there. So, like, that's related to uh, a quote you uh, brought out last episode, I think, about the personal God, believing in a personal God. And so here she's not believing in a personal God. Um, but that, that aspect of this vapor that, you know, she might become part of, that, you know, sounds in some ways like nirvana, like Buddhism or, or Hinduism or, or Sikhism uh, in a way, too. That's uh, it's, it's very rarely related there, um, but also vape. I, I'm not sure how familiar Green would be with Hebrew, but the fact that Sarah realizes how like wrong she is about that sort of belief, like even within this paragraph, or or how 
that is not this kind of God within this paragraph even, um, leads me to understand this um, relationship to a, a little book in, in the Bible uh, called Ecclesiastes. <laughs> um, and I think, I, I, I hope I'm not betraying my, my Hebrew here, I think the Hebrew word is chevel, um, which is the word in Ecclesiastes for vanity, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or meaningless, or totally meaningless. Um, but chevel... I think I did something about, some gist about the NIV that translated as, oh, good. as meaningless, but um, I'll tell you that on the so, back end here. So you've got, you've got in, in Hebrew, you've got two words for breath. One is ruach, which is the more common word for breath, and it's like the breath of life that God breathes in and all that stuff. Um, and then you've got hevel, which is another sort of breath, which is, it, it, it's not explicitly derived this way, but you can think of ruach as the oxygen you breathe in and hevel as the carbon dioxide you breathe out. And a very legitimate translation of hevel is vapor. Uh, and it comes up a lot. And so, like, this idea of this vapor being something meaningless, being something useless, being absolutely pointless, is the sort of religion that she can accept, but it's not the one that she winds up coming to, that there's a personality behind that utter meaninglessness. So, yeah. a couple okay. things I think I point yep. out here. A, uh, the the NIV thing was about a youth uh -huh. pastor I knew who I, I probably disagree with a lot theologically, but he always called the NIV the nearly inspired version because it's written very badly, and that is a hill I will die on. Um, secondly, I at some point I know I point out that like uh, the the back half of this passage that Michael's talking about does kind of contradict the more Gnostic themes of uh, Green's association with, with Manich Manichaeism or Manichaeanism um, yeah. in that, uh, you know, that's, that's a, the, the Gnostic idea is that your, your spirit sort of transcends your body, and this passage seems written almost to hammer home the idea that sure. Catholicism and, and sort of traditional Orthodox Christianity in general is a very body-centric religion. Like, yeah. the the Vulgate for the resurrection of the flesh um, has the phrase con carne in it, of of meat, or, or like chili con carne, chili with yes, meat. Yes, I was going to say that. <laughs> um, I don't think that's what Michael was going to say, but I'm leaving that in. Uh, and again, the point being, like, that for all his, his dualism and his flirtation with Manichaeanism or Manichaeism, uh, Green... Mm -hmm. Or at least Sarah is a very, in a in a real way, a very Catholic sensibility. Yeah. No, and 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 the last episode I was getting directly to that point that like he's not Manichaeist, he's Manichaeanist. The like he the, the Gnostic aspect of Manichaeism is not there. He di directly right here rejects that. Sure. I don't know what he said sure to, but I'm glad it no. made him that happy. Um, Bring us back. Page right. 56. Bring us back to page 56. Well, there's a long space where I talked here, and I have no idea what I said, but I'm going to look at page... In the cosmos. 56. Um, lost in the cosmos joke. But <laughs> cover that up on your Michael and Ethan bingo card. Um, so, of course, 56 is, is us back to uh, Bendix after... Um, uh, after the blast, um, and whereas with my last, uh, my last sort of fill-in statement, I was, I was right in line with what Michael was going to say next. Um, I have no idea what I had to say about page 56 at this point. Oh, yes. Um, thank you, Michael. Uh, so we will just, uh, move forward and see what happens next. Very good. Uh, and I do want to point out that as you were talking about that interview, uh, you did use the phrase that you were going to, quote, arbitrarily choose to begin, unquote. Okay. Oh, yeah. That was a joke I did on purpose. All right. I, I was I was super happy to hear it. I remember that I much. Was, I don't remember. I was super happy to hear it. So thank you I for that. I don't remember what the joke um, was. 
so I, I before we close out on this, I do want to like mention one aspect of the book that we haven't touched on much at all, except tangentially, and that is the character of Henry Miles, the the husband uh, of Sarah, the, the cuckold. Uh, which, as I understand, uh, so, so there are parts of this book that are like semi-autobiographical in the sense that Graham Greene was having an affair with a married woman um, and that affair ended and stuff. And her, like the book is dedicated to her, I guess. And uh, her husband was named Henry and he just like took his name and put it in as, as the cuckolded husband. I don't like we've got like 10 minutes so we can't spend a lot of time on this but like I have no idea what I interrupted Michael yeah, to say right. here um past Michael's skepticism notwithstanding uh however I I I do know I think I added some stuff about um the the non-fiction or the autobiography aspects of this um of this book which to uh see the yeah the C the woman that uh, you sunk my battleship. Um, thank you, Michael. The woman that that Green uh, both did have an affair with and dedicated the novel to. I believe she wrote to him. He had one of his books had been instrumental in her conversion to Catholicism. So they started out as having sort of a spiritual, yeah. you know, spiritual relationship. Oh, sure. uh, but that sounds fine then, like, that relationship led to this sort of torrid affair. Um, and, you know, this book obviously uh, right. is fictionalized and, and is fictionalizing, but um, thematically, I think, and, and intellectually and probably spiritually, like, is Green's, like, working out of what happened there and probably trying to make sense of it among among other things um and that's that's all i guess i really remember about that that sounds right thank you michael well i i didn't even necessarily want to get into the autobiographical nature of it um just the character of henry miles himself um who seems in a lot of ways like a pushover like uh a character that we could steamroll. Um, and, you know, as we've done, we've had a couple hours of discussion of this book without talking about him much at all, except as he serves the the characters of Bendrix and Sarah. But he is even still a full character of his own right. Um, he, he gets villainized by Bendrix, but at the same time, and and by Sarah a little bit, just by like his unfeelingness or or what have you, but then he's also allowed to show his virtue and to shine. He's not just pitied by the uh, the reader. Um, he he has agency. He has um, I don't qualities. I that's that's really vague. Um, I'm I'm thinking specifically of. Uh, like when Bendrix goes off and, and gets all um, angry with the, the religious aspects of things and Henry's like, well, no, maybe, you know, if that's what she wanted. Um, and also, I think it's in Sarah's journal when she's ready to leave him, she's got her suitcases packed, she comes down and um, like he needs her at that moment. Like he's got a headache or something. Um which, like, it seems like such a little subtle thing, but he makes his presence known. If Henry is on the page, he is on the page. It, which, in the sense of, of this being an affair, um, you've got Bendrix and Sarah, you've got to think that when that affair is going on, the the man who is being cuckolded by the affair is present even if he's not present. And they want him to be smaller. They want him out of the picture. And so by the narration, he does seem smaller in a lot of ways, but he still makes his presence known. If that makes sense. 
that I, that's that's just kind of a reflection I've had about the character of Henry, and I wanted to make sure to get it in here at the end. So, all right, well, I guess I guess we'll we'll end there. Um, so this this concludes our discussion of the end of the affair by Graham Greene and uh, Ethan. This is also the fourth episode in a series of four in which we were just uh, drinking uh, the same Highland Park twelve-year-old, and neither of us broke a rule. Which means that Michael failed which, to take one for the we, team. We both both broke a rule. <laughs> uh, so, this is um, so we both get punished. He was the host. Ethan. I don't know what um, else to say. So I am going to try well, to do this I, punishment. I was wondering what you thought about taking a Shakespeare race, Michael, real time for for our punishment. Um, and I was wondering if you thought that uh, since I referenced it, um, some Romeo and Juliet would be all right. Um, let's go act two, scene two, um, yeah, it's, uh, right at the beginning, uh, of scene two, we'll start at, uh, I think line two, act two, scene two, line two. But soft. Uh, and that speech. <laughs> I don't know what I said, but apparently it was funny. Woof. Um, and then apparently it was bad. Or Michael is trying to pretend it was bad because he was jealous. I'm going to go with that. No, because it, it, it's no? been, I think, longer than 12 years. Um, oh, I talked about in, how he was in Romeo and Juliet as um, Romeo. This was, hang on, we're in 2022 now. It was a long time ago. This was uh, 14 years ago. And Michael and I are both very old and honestly have known each other, yeah, I guess, for so a long time. So um, let's go through line 26. Uh, that I might touch that cheek right before Juliet says I me. So the whole speech of Romeo's. Um, so, shit, alright, I'll count us down. Three, two, one. But tough will light through yonder window break, it is the east, and Juliet is the sun, arise her son, until the envious moon, who is already thick and pale with grief, that thou art her maid, are far more fair than she. Be not her maid, she is envious, her vestial livery is but thick and green, and none but fools do wear, and cast it off, and oh, it is my lady, oh, it is my love, oh, that she knew she were, she speaks, yet she says nothing, what of that, her eye discourses, I will answer it, I am too bold, tis not to me she speaks, two of the fairest stars in all the heaven, having some business to entreat her eyes to twinkle, is the spheres until they return, what if her eyes were there, they in her head, the brightness of her cheek would shame those stars, daylight on the lamp, her eye in heaven, through the airy region streams, so bright that birds would sing and think they were not night, see how she leaves her cheek upon her hand, and then I wear a glove upon that hand, and I might touch that cheek. <laughs> so, fantastic. gentle listener, I think in this rendition, roughly similar things happened <laughs> to what happened in the original recording, which is that we did. We that was that was that was like neck and neck. Yeah, we were neck and neck. Michael started out ahead. I think I gained on him. And I did stumble. You caught up. And yeah, I, I, he stumbled. I caught up. I gained on him, and then he he. Uh, Blitz passed me in the final run. Like, <laughs> oh, it's disheartening that with knowing the oh, outcome and okay. having now that we've got the punishments out of the way, having and, some time uh, to prepare, what they want. Um, like the exact yeah. same thing still happened. Like I did that organically. I, you know, I didn't again because I'm too lazy to edit this any more than I absolutely have to. Like, oh no, all of that was just was just me trying to Oof. recreate the past again with the advantage of being in the future and I still lost. So yeah, like yeah, what does that say about me? What does that say about um you know determinism right. versus free will? I don't know. Uh all right, now let's go on to the scotch. The the Highland Park twelve year old Viking honor single malt scotch whiskey. Um Ethan, give us your rating. One to five stars. Yeah, Michael was very generous, of course, letting me rate it first. Uh I don't remember I, I Okay. This is a Maybe the one thing in this episode that's the most hard to sort of archaeologically excavate from six to eight weeks ago. I don't remember exactly what I thought. I believe I gave it four stars. Um, 
And I believe that was probably higher than mm. I might be expected to give it, given my own predilections for scotch. It's not a super smoky scotch. Um, I happen to have the bottle right next to where I'm re-recording this. Mm. Or not the bottle, but the uh, the box, rather. Um, and, yeah, it the box talks about sweet heather honey and rich fruitcake. I definitely picked up on honey and, like... I want to say there was a little bit of stone fruit. Uh, oh, through. sure. It was certainly an interesting scotch. I think there was probably also some... That's not a, that's a taste. Uh, I don't know what that was. I wish I could remember. Um, there, yeah, it was, it was an interesting scotch. I gave it four stars, even though it wasn't nearly as peaty or as smoky or as uh, sort of sea salty as my, like, scotches that, you know, really... Uh, trip my trigger, as it were. Um, but again, uh, four stars, very solid scotch, very complex, interesting um, tastes happening, like would drink again, just not sure. sort of my all-time favorite. I, I think I liked it a little more than you. Um, I'm going to give it four stars. Uh, I, oh. I I really liked the blend of the the peat and the fruity sweetness. I, I think more than anything, this is a scotch that made me hungry. Maybe I give it three um, and a half stars, which like I I think makes it just kind of an ideal aperitif. I I don't know what it is. Like I m- m- I don't know what I said here. Uh, maybe something oh, about yeah. you know the the fruitiness or the sweetness yeah. or the, and the complexity sort of awakening the palate. Um. But now in retrospect, if Michael gave it four stars, I know he rated it higher than I did, so I'm going to say I gave it three and right. a half stars. I did that or like a really good shepherd's pie. Yeah, something about shepherd's pie. I, again, don't know what I said there. Like, I can see this as... No, that's okay. I, I, I just... I, I think I can see this as a scotch that I, I would have on hand to serve to guests before we went to dinner. You know? Like, this is what we're going to drink while we're having our pre-dinner conversation. And I don't know, again, Michael pauses here, I don't know if I said something about, like, scotch isn't usually an aperitif, but, like, I would definitely be on board. <laughs> Great. All right, Ethan. Unapologetic. Great. Yeah, I am, All right, rate the book for us, Ethan. As always. The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. As always, unapologetic. Um, I obviously rated this book a buy, like, always buy, buy it forever. Um, you know, if if you're only going to read one Graham Greene book or, or buy one Graham Greene book, like, it should be this one. Um, you know, Graham Greene's dead, so, like, you don't have to feel guilty, even if you would otherwise, about, like, buying this book used. It's probably pretty easy to find a used copy for fairly cheap. It's one that's worth having on your shelf and rereading multiple yeah. times. Um, I'm also going to rate it a buy. Um, I'll just add to, to your rating that it's so short that you can you can you can easily slide this into your bookshelf. It's it's not a problem. Um, all right, now, Ethan, rate the pairing. Perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, total mismatch. Now, once again, I honestly have no idea what I rated this. Like, I'm sure Michael's audio coming up will probably tell us. Um, mm. My instinct as I'm re-recording this is, um, I guess I would say, uh, pretty sure. good match, tending towards perfect match. I mean... Any any novel written, you know, set in England, especially one about sort of tortured souls, existential crises, like, Scotch goes great with it. Um, and, like, especially with, like, the, the recurring motif of, like, the mm-hmm. rain and, you know, the, the dampness, like, Scotch is obviously from a region of right. the planet where, you know, there's a lot of damp, there's oh a lot gosh, of... We didn't even talk about that. You know, if not sea air, there's a lot of, uh, you know, sea air and, and damp and, and rain. And um, I say those as someone who loves all of those things. Wow. Uh, so I don't know what I said that Michael's reacting to exactly, no, but no. 
We're not talking about the book anymore. I guess I'd say, I guess I'd be comfortable saying perfect match. Oh, sure. All I'm going to say is I'm mad at how perfect that description is. (laughs) Man, I wish I had that, huh? I love it, which means I love it. I hate it, and therefore I love it. Um, And that sums up Michael's and my, you know, relationship. Going back apparently at least 14 years, which is terrifying <laughs> to think about. It just it just embodies our philosophy with books. But I I gotta say, perfect match also for pretty much the same reasons because I mean it it is like I just feel like I'm in a drenched raincoat when I drink the scotch. Okay, so I did say a similar thing, and I'm mad about it, but also just like fine about it. So, I don't know. So, again, this is Michael cleverly working in the exactly. scenes of the book. Exactly. Thank you, yes. So. All right. Well, Ethan, this concludes our ratings. Would you like to know what book we are discussing next? Well, yes, Michael. I would like to know what I book think, we're discussing next. Well, I'm I, not two-thirds of the way through it right now. I don't right have now. any concrete evidence to the fact that you might have a copy of this book. But I think it's entirely likely that you would have a copy of this book. <coughs> Excuse me. Wow, bless yeah, you. I feel like it's it should be true that you have a copy of this book, but let me know if you don't. Um, we're we're going, I think, almost. Well, I, I think it'll be a, an interesting comparison to the end of the affair by Graham Greene because I think I've never read it before, but from what I understand of it, it does sort of the opposite of the end of the affair. It is the book Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Do you have a copy of this book? I did not. Spoiler alert, Michael buys me one. Um, well, now you do. And now so that I'm two-thirds of the way through I this book, the button. like, I had forgotten that Michael said what he just said about so, doing the opposite of the end of the affair. Yeah, that's it's that, that is what we were discussing next. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. I think it stretches the limits of uh, length of, of book. Eh. It, I mean, it's no ease of eating, but... Um, it, it's not a short. It's 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 not a, a end of the affair either. Um, it's a Victorian but I think novel. It's manageable. What are you um, going to do? And I, I've I've liked everything I've read by Thomas Hardy prior to this, so I'm looking forward to trying this one. Probably his most famous or infamous novel ever. I think I go into a thing here about how. The last time I read Thomas Hardy, I was maybe 20 years old, 21. Okay, maybe. all right. And it was The Mayor of Casterbridge. And I hated the book on the principle okay. that I disagreed with Thomas Hardy's both, like, sure actual philosophy as well as his, like, philosophy of writing fiction. Um, I don't remember if I go into this super specifically, but it was, it's basically, as I understand and as I remember, again, from, you know, 12 years ago, um, Hardy's, like, fiction philosophy is, it it has, and and again, philosophy of real life has to do with determinism strongly. He thought Mm -hmm. character was destiny. um, Right. And that sort of, you couldn't alter, you know, Whatever. Uh, we'll we'll probably go. I'll I'll may I've been planning to research it before we record for Jude <laughs> the Obscure, sure. and we'll see if I do that. But probably go into it more strongly then. But I think I conclude this by saying like, sure. at this point in my life, I found that it is actually possible to enjoy fiction written by someone whose philosophy you disagree with, and even fiction written by someone whose philosophy of fiction you disagree with. Le- last last thing I want to say about it is like I, I I you know I've never read it before and I've wanted to and one thing that's been pushing me to want to is there's a podcast by Michael E Michael Ian Black called Obscure where he reads it for the first time and I've been wanting to listen to that so but I yeah I mentioned here that I like I I had heard of this podcast I was trying as as Michael talked about it I was trying yeah. to remember who the who the you know creator of it was. And was wondering whether Michael did this on purpose to go to war with Michael Ian Black. Oh no, no, I I I knew about that. Yep, yep, this is war. We're 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 coming for him. <laughs> well, that's a that's a way Michael could praise that on a family podcast. What are we reading after that? 
Uh, after that, Michael. I, I do. I do want to know. Oh, you do? Okay. Yes. After and that, asked, what, what are we reading after that? We're re- Well, if you'd like, you know, if you'd let me answer, I would. I would tell you. Um, we're reading the book "Filthy Animals" uh, by. Okay. Oh. Uh, an author named Brandon Taylor. Okay. Now, I have not read anything by Brandon okay. Taylor, but I have often described him to my wife as my favorite author who I haven't read anything by. Um, <laughs> and this is pretty much what I said, you know, when we originally recorded, I believe. Uh, anyway, it's uh, Filthy Animals, I believe, is a book of short stories. They may be interconnected, but I'm still claiming the title of, like, the first person to bring a book of short stories to the main podcast. Um Okay. The reason I say Brandon Taylor is my favorite author I've never read is that I found him on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, like, I, I just happened across him on Twitter, you know, through following other authors or or different uh, uh, things. Um, and I think I first read, I want to say it was a profile in the New York Times or maybe the New York Times Review of Books of him and then just following his Twitter I've become a big fan of, like, him as, like, a public presence and a public, you know, communicator, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, I've, up till now, not done the thing that 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 public presence and that public communication probably would most like me to do, i.e., read his actual books. He has two out, as I understand, Filthy Animals was released in 2021. Um... So it's, it is his most recent one, at least at the time of this yeah. recording. Um, and the other reason I, I was interested in him was he, uh, I believe, taught for a while at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is like uh, where I have spent the majority, well, it's, it's the greater area in which I have spent the majority of my life. And, you know, Midwest fiction has... As anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, been a predilection of mine. So, like, uh, all of that, those connections also are what made me choose. Unless you count Race High the Roof Beams, Carpenters, and Seymour in Introduction. But oh, this is where I was claiming to, it to be the first collection right. of short stories. So, and I think I pointed out that uh, right. Race High the Roof Beams is a pair of novellas, uh, which are technically considered different from short stories. <laughs> so all right gentle listener you know what we're reading next so please read along give us your feedback in the contact section of of tapestryradio.org put scotch talk in the subject line or at room with scotch on twitter or in the tapestry radio tap house on facebook if you request to join we'll let you in unless you are not ambiguous we'll also do your homework we don't promise to do it well, but we can don't plagiarism because we like to laugh at it. Go to the website, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. You'll find the homework submission form close to the top of the page. Fill that out. We'll do something with it. Uh, at least try to make it fun. If you like this podcast, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the actual play fiasco RPG improv podcast. Freddy Goes to a Podcast, the Freddy the Pig Children's Book Series Discussion Podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play Podcast. And rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so that other people can learn about this and enjoy this content. Uh, Ethan, where can they find you? Uh, The usual stuff. It's at Bjartlett on Twitter, at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, and then Instagram, there's Captain Stormfield, not a real captain, just a reference to a Mark Twain character. Uh, I'm not really super active on either platform these days, but I look at them, so I'll see it if you Uh, want. I'm similar to that. I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L, not a frequent tweeter, but I'll probably respond if you tweet at me. And so, until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if you cuckold us. Please don't. Wow. That's a that's a freaking great sign-off, honestly. That's maybe my favorite sign-off so far. So, before I go, let us go into the 
you know, the end of matter. Um, thank you if you have listened thus far. Thank you for coming along with me on this wild, very meta, um, very weird ride. Uh, again, hopefully it's been interesting, entertaining, uh, or, or something. Um, I mean, if you're here an hour later, like, hopefully that says something. Anyway, uh, we'll, I'll try, I'll do my best to resolve my tech issues and make backups the most basic thing that anyone tells you to do if you're, you know, doing things with a computer since 1970, whatever. Um, I'll try to do that next time, and hopefully this won't happen again. Um, but again, thank you. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated object of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.